key thing is don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome, this is the live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting live from an undisclosed location deep in the woods of western Wisconsin. I expect to be broadcasting from a somewhat less undisclosed location deep near the beach of eastern Morocco before too long, inshallah. Meanwhile, let's get on with business. This is Revolution.Radio, the greatest of free speech listener-sponsored networks. Keep speech free. Help them keep it going by going to freedomslips.com, a.k.a. Revolution.Radio. Revolution.Radio is not a .com, a .org, a .net, or a .edu. It's a .radio. And you can go there and find a way to help. You can also find a way to help me at my substack, kevinbarrett.substack.com. Or you can go to truthjihad.com and get redirected to an Icelandic site where you can um, find most of my stuff. All right, let's move on with the show today. A really interesting combination of guests. In the second hour, Jafar Ramini comes on to talk about the 75th anniversary of the Nakba or the Palestinian Holocaust. Jafar Ramini is a Palestinian Holocaust survivor. You may not have seen dozens or hundreds of Hollywood movies about the Palestinian Holocaust. You might not have been deluged with propaganda about Palestinian Holocaust survivors, a.k.a. Nakba survivors. There is not a Nakba museum in every town, city, burg, and hamlet here in the United States and indeed across the Western world. But, hey, the Nakba is the real thing, an effort to utterly destroy, exterminate, expel an entire people, to erase Palestine and the Palestinians from the face of the earth. That's what Zionism is. That's what the state of Israel is. Israel is simply a euphemism for the genocide of Palestine. So Jaffa Rabini, who was uh, expelled from Palestine amidst the massacres of 1948 when he was five years old, will be on in the second hour to talk about that. First hour, Matthew Crawford of Rounding the Earth is coming on to talk about World War E. That is the economic war for control of the globalized globe. And Matthew is a well-known educator, entrepreneur, statistician, finance specialist, and founder of Rounding the Earth. He has quite an interesting track record in being ahead of the curve on many things, including, of course, crypto. And I'm very curious about what he has to say about World War E. So let's talk about it. Hey, welcome, Matthew. How's it going? Uh, It's going well. Hey, Kevin, how are you? I'm pretty well. Um, So the World War E thing... Obviously, you know, war is economics or politics by other means. Economics is war by other means and so on. Uh, and we're, we're all trying to figure out what's really going on geopolitically. And it's probably not quite as simple as the traditional nation state model would have it because there are these plutocratic elites, these, these oligarchies that are really running the governments that are competing and maybe influencing more than one government at a time. 
So it's kind of 3D chess. It's not like the straightforward chess of the U.S. versus China for supremacy or anything like that. There's more to it than that. And your World War E ideas are a good way of sort of getting beneath that surface. And so maybe you could start by talking about uh, this thing you set out. I don't know how many people you sent it to, but you, you emailed me asking, what are the chances that World War E is the globalists uh, trying to pilot China versus other globalists trying to pilot America? where the Rothschilds are the most likely source using China. And perhaps Elon has taken control of American machinery by virtue of having the satellite system that breaks the symmetry. That's interesting. And that would cast new light on, you know, Elon versus the ADL, Elon versus Soros, which was a big story this week. So so what are your thoughts on that? Well, I've looked at China for a number of years, and I've always thought that – that China was not what we were told it was in the media. And and really, this is an opinion that goes back to when I, I was an Asian bond trader back in the late 90s. And, and you know, most of my portfolio was Japanese bonds. But um, obviously, you know, if you're in Asian economics or finance in, in some way, you're, you're paying attention to China. And over the years, especially uh, having so many Chinese clients, uh, when I left Wall Street going into education, um, I I would find out things that just sort of seemed um, discontiguous or anomalous relative to the way we think about um, the the Western media version of China. And so I've gradually sort of asked questions over the years, and sometimes I've voiced these out loud, and I don't really have an answer, but, but I ask a lot of questions, right? You know, it's clear that the West deliberately uh, went to China to reinflate it, early 70s, right? Yeah, it, although it's still up in the air whether they really understood the full implications of what they were starting, where it would go. Yeah, That's a possibility. Um, I think that good control actually has been had. Um, you know, one of the reasons I do is uh, is China, you know, despite what we're told in the media, there are a lot of ways in which China has not nearly caught up with us technologically. Like, for instance, it was only five years ago, six years ago, that uh, China learned how to make a ballpoint pen without help from the West. Uh, and there are so many products that are made um, that are part of you know modern-day technology that happen in free ports all over the world. And, you know, one team that's working on one part has no idea what, you know, another team working on a, another part does, right? Um, so, there are a lot of things that have been held out of China's hands, including, you know, how to make better than 14 nanometer, you know, computer chips, which we found out after um, Biden uh, withdrew uh, U.S. help making, uh, you know, up to or you know down to seven nanometer chips. So trying to figure it out is not easy. But one of the thoughts that I've had recently is if this is World War E, as in if there are actually major powers struggling against each other. Which is which is that alone is a question to me. It's not clear to me that the major powers aren't working in alignment. But if there are major powers working against each other, then it's clear that um, or I shouldn't say clear, but uh, the most likely um, model of China is that the Trilateral Commission helped push the reinflation of China. And we know that the Rothschilds have sort of special privileges there. Right. And the Rothschilds are. You know, the, the biggest gorilla in the city of London, you know, uh, financial megaplex, 
Um, and and, and could you, could you uh, be specific about what special privileges the Rothschilds do have in China? Well, my understanding is that uh, is that they is, is that if you are not Chinese, if you're you know uh, living in China or, or Chinese national or something, that you can't have uh, a fifty percent stake in a company, but that the Rothschilds and possibly uh, a very scarce few other people have a special privilege there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't haven't really heard that, but I'd be interested in checking into it. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I, I would have that, thought the uh, Chinese would hate the Rothschilds after the opium wars and such. Well, it, you know, it, it's unclear. It, it's unclear to me if people really know who runs companies in a sense, right? Um, it, you know, talking about banking, it's actually difficult to tell how much of the U.S. banking system might be swayed by the Rothschilds because, for instance, we don't know the list of names who run the Federal Reserve. That's true. And That's even beyond that, even, even beyond that, you know, let's remember that China was a nation that was run for almost 300 years by a very tiny minority of Manchurians. And if you can run a very large nation from a very uh, tiny minority perspective, it's not unreasonable to think that you could have uh, enough layers to keep people from really understanding where the power is. And, and let me ask you about the Manchurians running China thing, because my understanding was that um, there have been changes about sort of which parts of China maybe greater percentages of the Mandarins came from. But there's been a Mandarin system, which is essentially a system of nationwide examinations. And the people who score Mm -hmm. highest on the examinations are then uh, taken to the capital and become the advisors of the emperor. And that that system in one form or another... Yeah. So, so when you say a minority, it's what we're really talking about is a, uh, a meritocratic elite that was has been operating in China according to an almost sort of scientific modern system of selection that hasn't really existed anywhere else until very recently. Um, so, is is that the kind of minority that you mean, or were you saying that there's a, a Manchurian ethnic minority that's been running things? Well, uh, during the from 1636 to uh, 19. Uh, I don't know if it was 06 or 1912. I can't remember um, whether that was um, uh, Puyi's um, birth date or when he abdicated the throne. Anyhow, um, for you know, for about 270 something years, uh, the ethnic um, Manchurians ran China, the Qin Dynasty. But wasn't it really and, their advisors? The uh, the Mandarin um, advisors have always been really in charge, haven't they? Well, I think that the civil service exam was well, – most of the history of it was during uh, the Manchu rule. Um, I, I'm not positive on that, but my understanding is the civil service exam is about 400 years old. And, it, and one possible way to view that is that it was their new form of eunuchs, right? Um, China has always been uh, a nation that made use of some sort of a buffer class and a class of people who would um, – have less desire or ability to have generational transfer of wealth uh, and for those people to become sort of, um, you know, court experts. And they, they often even exported these court export experts, um, you know, for, for profit. <laughs> but, um, it, it, you know, it, and, and understand I'm trying to build a theoretical framework. I'm asking more questions than I can give answers for, but 
it's it's an interesting thing that 120,000 people can can take over and and run a country of so many you know tens hundreds millions then over a billion. Um, but anyhow, uh, somehow <clears throat> Western influence got into China and helped build it up. And I think that the Rothschild banking empire is the most likely to have been the 800 pound gorilla there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, during, you know, the opium wars really, which were a, a kind of a British crushing of China at that period, the Rothschilds were a uh, major force. Some would say the major force behind British power. Yeah, British East India Company, Bank from London. Exactly, mm-hmm. right. So yeah, they've had a hand in China for a long time. But my sense was that the communist revolution was aimed at t- taming or expelling much of that influence. Although I suppose they would continue to use it or try to use it, in, you know, when they when they could. And that today, my understanding, based on interviews with people like Ellen Brown, among others is that the big difference between Chinese banking and Western banking is that the Western system is a quote-unquote free market system, meaning that the oligarchs have free reign to do any darn thing they want, whereas in China, more than 90%, maybe more than 95% of uh, banking is publicly owned. And so when you know, lo- money is created by being lent into existence at interest, it's being done so mainly by state actors who are directing where it goes and making sure that it serves the common good and builds public infrastructure and things like that. And according to Ellen, that's the secret of the Chinese economic miracle. And others like Michael Hudson, of course, largely agree with that. So uh, my take then would be that there is, in fact, a real geopolitical uh, clash between the Western oligarchy and the Chinese, um, call it communist, call it, you know, public. You could argue that it's actually more like the West was back when the commanding heights directed uh, major investments. But however you want, you want to describe it, these Western oligarchs who like want to be able to just loot the planet without any interference from any public-spirited bureaucrats or regulators see Chinese China and the Chinese model as a threat, and that that means that there really is a huge geopolitical clash between the oligarch-run uh, West and uh, state-directed commanding heights run China. Um, that's possible. I, I worry about China's banking system in that sense. Um, in terms of you know who who is who supports the currency? Then you know if you have a debt-based currency system, um, you, you know you need some sort of a market for that debt in order to know what it's really worth. In a sense, right? Um, and if you're locking everybody out and they have like a, a two tier uh, currency layer that locks capital in and locks people, you know, from from in to out. So, you know, the U.S., on the other hand, when the U.S. issues debt, the U.S. has two things going for it. It has the world's navy that really does run world trade in a lot of ways. Right. If we withdrew that, the world world trade would go into chaos. And if we wanted to, we could uh, perhaps um, wage war in order to take control of supply lines. A second thing that the U.S. has that China doesn't is more valuable land. Um, the federal government owns, you know, something like 60, uh, you know, low 60 percent of the land in the Western states. And that's not trivial. I've heard um, estimates of value that actually go over our debt and unfunded liabilities. 
so it's hard to know exactly what that is for sure. And, you know, when you have things like the Saudi royal family coming over and buying um, uh, land with water rights and growing massive amounts of alfalfa and essentially exporting it back to Saudi Arabia in order to export water, <laughs> that suggested that that people who do buy the U.S. debt do have some sort of a claim uh, on, on what they would be buying. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, what China could find itself in a state of going forward in the future, if it keeps issuing debt at the rate that it does, it could drive its own hyperinflation without any kind of an outlet, uh, without any kind of a market that could, um, uh, you know, outside market that could bring in capital to help support it. So in some sense, it may be, you know, a faster growing economy, but it may also be a faster declining economy if they run into economic instability. And that prediction has been out there for quite some time. And one interpretation is that the naysayers who were skeptical about China's ability to maintain its rapid economic growth, who've been naysayers, you know, there's been naysayers ever since the whole thing started. And sure. one theory is that the real reason that China has overtaken the U.S. Uh, in real economic terms is that these naysayers have been listened to uh, since, what, the mid-70s. And that the you know the the geo strategists ruling the West have been lulled to sleep uh, on that basis. So maybe the naysayers are right now, and the Chinese economy is going off the cliff. You know, next year or five years or ten years or twenty years or a hundred years from now. But we we're not really sure when that will happen. I have I have a little bit of a different view that maybe just askew from from everybody in that debate. Um, when you know technology is the driver of wealth. Uh, I think of it like the um, uh, oh, what's his name uh, uh, the uh, MIT economist who won the Nobel Prize for coming up with a grow model, growth model of Solo Robert Solo. Um, he he defined anything that resulted in exponential growth as technology. But when you look at like technology adoption curves, like they happen over a period of decades, even in wealthy nations, right? Uh, some people get a vacuum cleaner and, you know, 20 years later, not everybody has a vacuum cleaner yet. It's still on the S-curve somewhere. Well, it was easy to reinflate China to some degree that makes it sort of look economically competitive with the West, which is just that you get all of the old technologies in there. Right. But that, you know, and what what that might do is bring everybody up to a standard of living that is, you know, a quarter, a third, a half. But unless you are the driver of new technology, um, then really, you know, your per capita wealth um, is, is still very different. And I think that a lot of your ability to, you know, push things around is not just, you know, what you say you have in your bank, especially if you separate your banking system from the rest of the world, uh, but also, you know, your ability to push new technological investments. And that's really still cornered by the West. But... That actually brings me to a point that I'm actually trying to research right now, which is, um, you know, no matter what the model of China is or whether or not um, the West either controls it more than is publicly known or at least uses it, uses China, possibly with with agreement from the rulers of China to develop certain, um, you know, black markets. And one example of that might be human cloning. I actually have grown to believe over the last uh, three plus years, uh, especially recently um, as I'm doing research, that um, more of, you know, what I call the plandemonium uh, may relate to human cloning than anything. I thought I thought the dollar was front and center 
that possibly we were bridging uh, between two eras, but it may be that that's sort of like your level two psyop. <clears throat> Whereas what what really may be underneath the surface is is the development of human cloning, um, and it may even be that there is a psyop to make it look like China's ahead in order to get the American people to go along with it. We get news about you know super soldier programs in China. It's hard to know exactly how seriously to take that. But then we also hear whispers of things like um, you know cloning farms in within the archipelago capitalism of Bahamas and the Caribbean. And I'm just starting to look into that now. And <clears throat> you know, given that, that that even the even the Chinese oligarchs, you know, we found out during the Panama Papers, tuck money away into that archipelago capital system. So there's something going on there that I think that we don't understand perfectly well yet from the outside, but either everybody's in it together and they're trying to, for, you know, for the oligarchs, be able to develop that level of technology to give them long-term or their family lines, long-term control. Um, or there is a struggle possibly between two factions to see who can get there first. Could there be a struggle between more than two factions? That's possible, but um, I, I doubt, you know, I, I doubt that there are that many places that have achieved nearly the level of technology that it might take. Uh, I think that even in the U.S., we're still making breakthroughs that relate to it. In fact, I, I think this is some of what the RNA uh, fad has to do with. Uh, we're experimenting with things like sending electric signals into cells in order to open up the, the lipid uh, bilayer to make it easier to get genetic material into cells. And I, I have, I'm wondering right now if the vaccines were a way to test uh, for certain things that will be required if we are to get there. Not only that, I actually... I have a theory about why it is that the data has been so dirty during the pandemic. In other words, you have one, you have, you know, public clashes of debates between different factions. One says people who are getting vaccinated are dying. So we should see more deaths where more people are vaccinated, right? Then there's another side that says, no, the vaccines are working. They're presented, they're preventing deaths. So we should expect to see, you know, death rates rising in the less vaccinated areas. But the fact of the matter is, when you look across U.S. county data, and I've run these analyses just recently, it looks like growth has been similar across U.S. counties, regardless of economic status. And that's very interesting because obviously we're seeing this growth of um, you know, deaths from violence, deaths from drug overdoses. The opioid crisis is, is not just real, but it's enormous now. But I actually, I, I'm actually wondering if the reason we're seeing more stillborn babies, and the and that there's you know an attempt to attach this publicly, maybe it is that these stillborn babies are actually um, attempts at human cloning experiments. Hmm. Okay. That that before we jump onto that one, could you clarify what you mean by this uh, data? Are you talking about uh, excess mortality data overall? Um, and you're saying that excess mortality data is, is broadly distributed across all socioeconomic groups. 
Um, yeah, uh, I, I've looked at over um, 3,100 something counties, and I'm writing a book right now called The Efficacy Illusion. But there's still, um, you know, some some interesting little puzzles to solve. Um, to the extent that there appears to be uh, less, you know, the fewer COVID cases in counties that have higher uh, vaccination rates, that's entirely um, the same correlation that you get just from looking at uh, like wealth status, right? Um, the higher the income, the healthier people are. And so it's just a uh, healthy user. Are you bias. using COVID deaths or deaths or cases? Just cases. Just COVID, okay. uh, well, yeah. cases or deaths actually, but if for overall all cause mortality, um, you actually see no difference. So why would you see, you know, why would you see more COVID deaths, um, but the same number of deaths overall? So, so how, how do you explain the sort of mainstream media's data that they, they point to, um, claiming that they're at, le- at least at, at one point it's of course pretty much gone now, but they're th- through the the so-called pandemic years, allegedly the. You know, the, the red states, counties and so on, the low vax areas um, did significantly worse on uh, excess deaths and COVID deaths. Uh, that was two things. One, um, you you already burned through the kindling in places like New York and New Jersey. And what I found is if I just exclude those counties, then that effect is far, far less dramatic. But it is it, that's the uh, it's still the same effect. It's entirely well, wait, wait, how, how could that be? Because that, that should push it the other direction. If because, yeah, New York, New Jersey are uh, blue states and so on and, so, and high vax areas. So theoretically, you, that would actually get, you know, you, you're ta- if you exclude that, you're, then you're getting rid of a bunch of the excess deaths and COVID deaths from the blue states. Oh, sorry. sorry let me clarify. Um, there were many more deaths in 2020 in uh, excess death in, in New York and New Jersey, whereas once the vaccines were rolled out, well, now you have so many fewer elderly people in nursing homes in those two states that you just shouldn't expect to have as many deaths. In other words, you should have um, mean reversion. I see. Okay, gotcha. With excess death. And, and when I look at the data, I do see most of that effect as mean reversion. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, um, with or without the, the New York and New Jersey counters, counties, um, the correlations uh, uh, that – the, the correlations between COVID uh, deaths and vaccines are the same graph as correlations between COVID deaths and median user income. And that's the same as COVID deaths versus educational status present with bachelor's degrees. So it, it like it is entirely explainable by healthy user bias. Interesting. So that would suggest that the vaccines didn't really do very much. I don't think that they did anything. When you look at the international data, um, you know, we were inundated with studies from just the U.S., the U.K., and Israel for the most part. Um, However, when you look at the international data, uh, and I did this in, I was doing this from uh, March 2021 through November 2021. I was looking at it um, weekly. I would download the R. Walden data data sets, and I would correlate all the nations in the world. And the trend line was the opposite direction that you would think. The more vac- uh, vaccine uptake by nation, the greater the COVID deaths on average. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, when I estimated that trend line, when I said, okay, what is the trend? What is the excess uh, deaths per million? I got numbers, you know, in the ballpark of 400 per million, which is interestingly almost the exact same number that the German insurer came up with last year when uh, the CEO, uh, I think they're called like PKK. 
um, came out and said, we think there are 31,000 deaths due to vaccines in Germany after uh, having conducted like some like 400 something thousand interviews with people. That was what they came up with as their estimate. And when you uh, divide that by you know the population or the you know, number of people who use vaccines, it is almost exactly what you get from that international trend line. Very interesting. Now, by the way, did you look at those Ron Unz articles where he discussed, he compared the mortality data uh, in various countries to the vaccination levels, and then look, he looked at obesity and discovered like the one correlation that really jumped out was that o- overall it looked like there was a pretty tight relationship between obesity levels in a, in a nation and the uh, COVID deaths. And he did find yeah. many nations where there was you know, nations where there was very little obesity and universal vaccination. There's basically there are no excess deaths at all. And that led him to conclude that the vaccines really couldn't be killing very many people, if any. Yeah, um, I, so I, I think that they're killing some people, but that there that there are factors that are balancing it out. But what you just described is healthy user bias. In fact, in the U.S., um, you might have you know heard this or read this. We had a spike in obesity from 2020, at least through 2021. <laughs> I haven't looked at that uh, as recently, but the spike in obesity, obesity was almost entirely contained in the bottom quartile of U.S. counties. Hmm. So I, I think that like factors like that have been balancing out um, what would look like a, a you know, clear disadvantage to being vaccinated. Um, I think that the number of vaccine deaths in the U.S. is probably on the order of 200,000. I think uh, my, like Denny Rancourt and I have different analyses that have come up with similar numbers. Um, you know, the, the period of time that I looked at, uh, when you looked at the first 30 days across Europe, um, I used that plus uh, an attempted age adjustment course, there was no way for me to do it perfectly, but I gave a pretty broad range and I came up with something similar to that 400 per you know, million number. Um, I said 200 to 500 at the time. Um, and, and then the BKK, if you uh, data from uh, Germany or PKK, I can't remember the name of the insurance group. Um, if you map that to the U.S. population, would have been around 126,000 at the time. So you know, 200,000 deaths. Can you balance out 200,000 deaths with something like opioid deaths or increased level of homicide, increased levels of suicide? And the answer is, I'm pretty sure the answer is yes, that you can balance out. So, interesting. Well, so when is your book coming out? Uh, don't know. Um, I have probably 70% of a draft. Um, I have talked with um, Norman Fenton, uh, the statistics professor from the UK who is uh, who has done a lot of work on uh, on you know showing that the miscategorization hypothesis uh, fits what we have seen with the claimed you know um, pandemic of the unvaccinated uh, claims and uh, you know he's shown the modeling and he has several instances that show that it's almost certainly the case that you've got a lot of um, COVID uh, cases being categorized as, as unvaccinated, even though they were vaccinated within the last like 14 days. Yeah, right. That That's actually kind of uh, suspicious, isn't it? That, uh, that Oh, it's very suspicious. Yeah. Because yeah. that, that's right when you expect if there are negative effects, um, you might expect some of them to show up uh, right away. 
So uh, suddenly, you know, any, anything bad that happens when you get vaccinated, basically, oh, you're categorized as having the bad thing happen because it was un- you were unvaccinated, uh, is uh, quite a statistical sleight of hand. What a maneuver. Right. And, and I think they're even being tricky about the definitions. Like, uh, you know, if you write and ask about the definition of, of uh, somebody who is vaccinated or unvaccinated, they'll say, oh, no, for the purpose of this analysis, a person was um, was considered unvaccinated uh, or so a person was considered vaccinated if they are post the injection point. But even then, I think that they're being tricky because uh, there's a difference between talking about like the person days that would be in the denominator and whether or not you would call a case a case from an unvaccinated person or a case from a vaccinated person. Like literally, I think that they are that they are playing with the definitions down to how they define words in the numerator and denominator. Mm-hmm. OK, <laughs> so um, ju- jumping to a, a, a different level of discussion here in terms of actually trying to get in, anything done about any of this politically. What do you think of RFK Jr.'s candidacy and the possibility of that either providing leverage to get some kind of reckoning with some of these pandemic <laughs> mismanagement issues, shall we say euphemistically, uh, yeah. uh, even if he doesn't end up like winning the nomination, which would be a tough slog and winning the white house, which would be an even tougher slog. Yeah. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> I think we could probably dance for hours around this question. Uh, I have some, I have theories that are plain and I have theories that are speculative, possibly even bordering on a bizarre, um, you know, I, I'm the kind of person who keeps any idea that sort of probabilities reach unless I can be certain of it. Um, what I'm more certain of is that I don't believe who gets elected uh, will be what determines how the future unfolds. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have grown into that belief over my entire 45 years of life, but it feels to me like um, like it is unlikely that policy really happens the way that it is constitutionally designed to happen. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, can, can somebody change that? If somebody can change that, it would be them and all of the people together. Exactly. Right? And that's where a charismatic figure with the kind of mythic, uh, and, you know, hysterical, uh, reverberations <laughs> around him, like RFK Jr. might be able to, uh, theoretically make something happen with uh, larger numbers of people. Yeah. So um, the answer is possibly. Now, I do see lots of people trying to cozy up to him. I see lots of interest in some of which I do not trust. Um, for instance, I do not trust Robert Malone, um, having, you know, gone into the, you know, when I worked on the defense uh, medical um, database project, he was the one who brought me into that. And then uh, my findings were not convenient to uh, what I what I think was a propaganda play, and so he, you know, has has never spoken word of it. Um, similarly, uh, Steve Kirsch tried to put together a pack for um, for RFK Jr. And having worked on Steve's uh, vaccine steering committee for a year and a half, I don't trust him either for a lot of reasons. Uh, but. Um, and, and, the, and there are other groups. I, I, I try to keep tabs on this. Um, there's one other one. I, I don't want to name it yet because I don't know exactly whether I, – I don't know the circumstances, and I'm trying to investigate it. <laughs> that said, if, if you want to hear an interesting kind of weird and wacky theory that I think that actually has some grounding, uh, I could go there. 
You interested? I guess. Yeah, go for it. But let me, let me first just point okay. out though, that, that with, with these, um, you know, not trusting, uh, Steve, Steve Kirsch or, uh, whatever it, 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 I, you know, normally there's a lot of room for honest disagreement in these areas. Uh, but so, you know, my, my tendency is to be careful of these kind, get letting, you know, these kinds of things develop and become attention sinks because, the you know, I, I see over and over that when there's sort of a, a popular movement for whatever it may be, that the divide and conquer routine from the outside is what stops it. And so, you know, wh- whether you're allowing the COINTELPRO people to stir up the problems with your movement or whether you're just allowing mo- problems to develop with your movement, it's normally better to kind of just step back and, you know, really not... Yeah, vocally mistrust oh, anybody you know, okay, until then, until they get just like egregiously out then, of control. Then let me then let me ground it at. Then let me ground it at. Um, those are two guys who jumped in, you know, several months into the vaccination program, holding hands, you know, appearing together on the, the Dark Horse podcast. But both of them had um, histories that involved uh, what appears to be the suppression of hydroxychloroquine and the promotion of remdesivir. Steve specifically was one of the funders of the Bullware trial in Minnesota that was announced on March 17th, 2020, you know, rushed, rushed into place <clears throat> to start testing remdesivir. I think remdesivir was a psyop uh, from the very start. And where is the first place that we see remdesivir? Now, my understanding is, though I haven't read the documents myself, uh, I've talked to, to multiple people who, you know, been doing the research, that uh, Robert Malone was um, involved at the very beginning of a project called Domain uh, that I believe was a uh, DITRA project. Um, and D-O-M-A-N-E, and that was an artificial intelligence project to match a genomic sequence to a medicine that would be most likely to help for it. Now, this, you know, having been involved in, you know, uh, machine learning myself, having a lot of former students who are in, you know, top research positions um, in a lot of places uh, doing artificial intelligence and, and just knowing, knowing some of the mathematics of it. Uh, I think that we're very far away from a project like that making any sense at all. And if it did make sense, we would be checking it against all kinds of past medicine. But it was the domain project that spit out um, uh, famotidine, or I don't know if I'm saying that right, basically Pepsidacy and remdesivir. And then conveniently, the Chinese, into a letter to Cell Magazine on February 4th, said, hey, we're seeing the best in vitro uh, results for uh, hydroxychloroquine or maybe it was chloroquine, uh, basically the same thing, and remdesivir. I think that, that there was basically a, a false binary, kind of like a false dichotomy, but false binary would be where you take the bifurcating branches of possibility and narrow it into one choice to pit it against the, the obvious choice, the obvious choice being hydroxychloroquine, because it had been studied against coronaviruses since 2003, after the first SARS-CoV outbreak. Well, it's also right. so it's, it was, it's cheaper than remdesivir, right? It's cheaper than remdesivir, but I think that that more, oh, yeah, by a lot. Like, you know, one one uh, one dose is like fifty cents um, for manufacturing. Yeah, it, it, it's so much different of a game on the profit level, sure, but even on the efficacy level, right, on the effectiveness level. And I think that the powers that be wanted this pandemic to play out. I think that whether you know, we're talking about the dollar or whether we're talking about something like a giant power play, like 
um, you know, genetic alteration, gene drive technology or human cloning. I think that they needed for all of this to play out larger. But aside from that, Steve Kirsch and Robert Malone, uh, there's no evidence that they made vast amounts of money by, you know, pumping up remdesivir or anything like that. I assume. I mean, that's just such a, that would be um, such a small I, I, fraction. No, I, I, do. I do not have direct evidence of that. No. Um, uh, on a profit level. <laughs> Um, but, but, you know, either one of them could have at any point in time promoted my results from the, from my study of the defense medical epidemiological database. Neither of them did. And my results pointed to, um, pointed to the most likely source of, of data manipulation being the defense contractor who handles the database. And it just so happens that in 2020, uh, I believe that was the year 2020, maybe it was 2021, but I think 2020, that that contractor was also given the contract for the U.S. border data. Mm-hmm. And, and I yeah. worked. It, interesting. Yeah. And, I, and that one, we talked about that. We did a show on that and people can find that and, and listen to it. And I, I think, I think you're, you know, you have a good argument on that particular point that uh, Steve Kirsch, Robert Malone, and lots of other people, in fact, the vast majority of people in the freedom movement, kind of jumped to conclusions on that data and may have been misled. So I think you made a good argument on that. But again, to me, that's not enough to really impeach the integrity and uh, overall good work of those two guys. I, I, well, I just, you know, having worked with Steve specifically, like I, I don't see much of his work as good work. Most of what he promotes on his, on his Substack, actually me and, and many other data people and statisticians that he's worked with have often said, no, 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 these things are wrong. And he goes and publishes them anyway. Um, so I would hesitate to say, you know, I, I think that he is acting more like the National Enquirer. Yes, he is promoting some truths, but yes, it's also within this chaos jungle of misinformation, disinformation, whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, it, the fact that he that he leaves a lot of like basic things uncorrected, even after they're explained to him. Um, it, that really, really bothers me. But I, I could also I could go on for a while about the number of things I felt or that I'm certain that he deceived me about. But, you know, I, for, for the sake of the conversation, you know, we can move past that for now. But I, I feel very justified, in my opinion. <laughs> OK. OK. So, so let's hear your weird theory about RFK Jr. OK. So one of the things that I discovered and, and in fact, uh, it was the it was the DMED project itself that that helped orient me to making these observations. There are tons of Scientologists all over the medical freedom movement. And I think that there's something more than just them being opposed to the uh, current medical paradigms. It's clear that they're not doing it under the name of Scientology. But for instance, um, one of the two attorneys who, the one who sat uh, aside Thomas Rents and connected the military whistleblowers to him who is somebody who had no, you know, very little legal experience, period, but certainly no whistleblower legal experience prior to the pandemic. Um, her name is Lee Dundas, and she has a, you know, at least, you know, judging from what I've seen online, a, a long record of audit with Scientology, but also, um, you know, is connected to a whole bunch of other Scientologists. And I have heard from somebody she was on a tour with that she had sent the, her assistant to like a, a Scientology camp, which is something that Scientologists often profit from. Um, so there, there's another one, John Mappin, whom I've told has been trying to 
he's often reaching out to people in England who are part of the medical freedom movement, trying to organize them. But I think he's keeping tabs on them at the very least. He interviewed Robert Malone, actually, um, just a few weeks ago after Robert Malone spoke at the Carlton Club, which is, um, you know, you might call it like the conservative branch of the Davos crowd, perhaps, or something like that. (laughs) Um, As far as people in England, he owns Camelot Castle and um, is heir to a, you know, quarter or a a 250-year, you know, uh, jewelry relationship with with the crown. Uh, He is is a Scientologist, is my understanding, but in particular, he's a rapid QAnoner. And And that's uh, kind of a suspicious combination there. It it is weird, but that combination has popped up in a lot of places. Lee Dundas is friends with the guy who operated, I think his name's Rob, Jim Watkins, who operated the uh, 8chan message board on which the QAnon drops were made. And I and many other people think that he was, you know, at least uh, a key figure behind it that he facilitated. Yeah, yeah, Um, he's he's at the top of every suspect's list as, as being Q. Yeah. Yeah. And I have I've also taken notes on some people around uh, RFK Jr. I'm not going to say any names yet, but um, who are Scientologists. So uh, hmm, part of the Q, part of the big the, maybe the biggest piece of the QAnon operation was this this uh, advertised event that John F. Kennedy Jr. was still alive and that he was going to emerge from the shadows to kind of save the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember hearing something about that. Yeah, and thinking, and my fact, goodness, uh, they call me a crazy conspiracy theorist. <laughs> right. I mean, like the QAnon stuff, some of it gets pretty bonkers. Yeah. At um, least it wasn't Elvis who's going to come back and save the world. <laughs> but um, I think that QAnon is connected to Scientology, first of all, because I keep finding like everybody um, who seems to be big into it that you would think of as being like a, a public fisher, uh, you know, public figure, more, you know, rationally held beliefs. Um, there's this weird intersection between QAnon and Scientology. Hmm. And I actually think that they are essentially part of, uh, you know, one in the same operation. In, in that case, one would think that Scientology would be the organization because, of course, QAnon just kind of came out of nowhere. And, you know, so so you'd be saying that, that QAnon is basically a Scientology operation. And what would its purpose be? Um, well, that might be unclear, but it may be whatever the DOD wants. I think that Scientology itself is is a DOD-run operation, is my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you when you go back to the very beginning of its roots, I mean, you've got this guy L. Ron Hubbard who hung around with uh, with with uh, Alistair Crowley, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, you have military guys who are also Satanists, right? And like then, Colonel Michael Aquino, for example, yeah. And um, yeah, uh, and and then you you know one of them uh, breaks off and goes and builds Scientology. Okay, um, he he fills it with all kinds of occult imagery. Is is at least the way it appears to me. The eight pointed cross, all these kinds of things. <clears throat> but uh, in particular, he establishes it as kind of a medical freedom movement, right? The, yeah, the especially anti-psychiatry. Yes. Yeah. If you wanted to establish a religion with a a, a good critique on society, public health is a good place to start. And then if you want to get a little bit more specific, um, you know, getting into the stuff that that is the hardest, the hardest to make anything not a pseudoscience, frankly. I mean, mental health is tough. That's tough research. 
right? Psychiatry, anything like that faces an uphill climb. Um, you know, the honest people who make mistakes there, we should probably give them a lot of leeway, at least for trying. But it, it, it is it is definitely a real difficult science because you're connecting the physical world to, gosh, consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I would go further the, and say that, that the whole notion of mental health might be based on a bad metaphor that the, you know, the physical health metaphor, especially in a materialistic paradigm, you know, involving drugs and surgery and interventions and fighting against infections, all this sort of stuff, all viewed from the materialistic paradigm. Well, then you transfer that medical uh, metaphor and you put it on people's behavior and consciousness and say, there's this thing called mental health. Uh, I think that's, that might even just be a bad metaphor. That that's that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people's consciousness and behavior. That's a spiritual matter that has you know it's it's only somewhat related to physical health, and it's and the whole materialist paradigm is completely wrong anyway. So the medical paradigm is basically wrong already, even when it's applying itself to physical health. And then you put that wrong paradigm on uh, on people's consciousness and behavior, which is it's even worse. So that, yeah, I would, I would agree. I mean, I, I think Scientologists sort of picking on uh, mental health professionals is, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're picking on, uh, you know, kindergartners. <laughs> well, to some degree, right. I, I like, I think that, um, you know, the, the, there are people who are better and, and, you know, better intentioned and there are people who are totally mixed up or people who are worst intentioned in the field is my opinion. Um, and, and it is true that, that, you know, we do see a lot of mental health issues result from uh, physical injuries, right? You, you get a brain injury and things change. Um, so, but just, you know, leaping past the complexity of all that, it's a very difficult field. It is one where you can, not only can you, can you, um, you know, introduce a pseudoscientific critique to, to a pseudoscientific, you know, subset of, of, you know, the field, but then, um yeah. <laughs> Uh, it, it's hard to disentangle that, but also you can just invite people in by saying, is something wrong in your life? We'll help you. Right. Mm-hmm. And so Dianetics was published as uh, a spiritual guide, not as uh, a medical guide. Right. Right. And, and actually I think that's, that is a better metaphor. So frankly, I think in a sense they're, they are barking up the right tree in terms of their metaphor. Now how they go about it is another issue. Yeah, I think that was actually just a legal dodge, is my understanding, that they just had to attach uh, spirituality in order to, to um, you know, get it legally published. Could be, although I, from what I understand about their methods, uh, what I thought I, you know, I haven't paid close attention to them, and it's been a long time since I read about them, so this is like 30, 40-year-old stuff, but what I recall they do is they sort of, you know, regress you or, you know, put you into some sort of a quasi hypnotic state and, and essentially get you back to, you know, supposedly they have this term clear for clearing out these buried traumas that leave some kind of an imprint that blocks your energy flow or something along those lines. And so it's, it's, it's one of these things like so many of these therapeutic types of things is, you know, sort of blowing out the, um, the old bad stuff that's that's kind of messing with your life. Well, you know, this you know, Freudianism does some of this. And, you know, a lot of different methodologies do this. Um, spiritual methodologies, as well as the more sort of so so called the modern you know health ones. But anyway, I thought I thought that but was what they I, did, I, and that I'm is more. Mention, yeah, 
Good. I'm going to mention one more piece of trivia here, and then and then leap us back to the big picture conversation. Um, so okay. one and we only have a couple minutes. That, oh, okay, okay. Uh, uh, the the military intelligence uses um, lie detector tests in order to filter people, and that's an, that was something interesting for me to discover on talking with people in military intelligence. Uh, it's unclear how the filtering works if you're on the outside of it. Um, the Thetan meter or the e-meter that the uh, Scientologists use is basically a polygraph. Yeah, yeah. So um, it, it may be that they, they've been sharing methods for filtering people for projects for many years. So, you know, jumping back to the big picture, though, um, you know, if you go back to the 1990s, you know, here in the U.S., we had anonymous fighting with with uh, Scientology. But what was going on all over Europe, Europe was raiding Scientology offices, finding out that they had connections to U.S. intelligence, including the CIA. Uh, but the reason they were raiding is because they had they had uh, good intelligence that the U.S. was using cults to infiltrate their societies and their governments. Hmm. So, well, the U.S. largely yeah. dominates their societies and governments anyway, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think that something similar happened in South Korea. And so I, I think that um, I think that we should be very wary of the QAnoners and Scientologists around the medical freedom movement. And this strange operation that may have been to soften up, you know, minds to the idea that RFK Jr. might save the world. And perhaps he could be, you know, whether or not he intends to be, you know, uh, have pressures around him to try to steer him. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Well, let's keep an eye on him and hope that these kinds of devious characters uh, don't get their hooks in him. So far, I don't see too much evidence of that, but I am not real close to him or his campaign I just hear, you know, what the guy says, um, which most of it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. But, of course, it yeah. would if that's what they wanted me to think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, clearly he makes sense on some issues. You know, I disagree with him on, on some things. Uh, uh, but, you know, it, it would be nice to have somebody come in and push back against public health and push back against um, the J.D. Rockefeller medicalization of of so many things that – we we have so many simpler solutions too. you know, if, if somebody could unite the population to push against that, that could be a wonderful thing potentially. Yeah. So and, if and that, they had to push for yeah. ethics, for, for ethics in public service, right? I mean, that's, that's an idea that uh, has gone by the wayside. Yeah. So, you know, and, and then, you know, another big question could be, could that be part of um, controlling either the, you know, sort of space race or a Cold War, you know, cloning race between the U.S. and China, or is that all just one big psyop in order to justify, you know, the trillion dollars of spending that we might do through the NIH and DOD and whoever else is, you know, whatever else is going on in order to create some sort of a patented designer baby thing for whatever business people are involved? Yeah, well, uh, I think you're probably, unfortunately, you know, barking up the right tree with this concern about the uh, cloning issue, you know, if you, that a lot of the people who know about this field have said that's, you know, that's on the horizon. And we yeah. are heading for a society where the rich people can sort of buy these designer babies. And of course, also, if you want power, what better way to perpetuate power than to clone your lineage? If you have a, you know, a, a lineage that's got a pretty, you know, track record of being able to rule through you know high intelligence and uh, ruthlessness and whatever else, uh, clone lots and lots and lots of people 
with that genetic background put them in a position to pull the levers of power, they're going to have a certain Mm -hmm. kind of tribal loyalty to each other and to their lineage, of course. Uh, And, you know, you you could rule the world if you built a stronger and bigger lineage of cloned uh, Mm -hmm. high IQ sociopaths with only uh, loyalty to each other. And to you. So there's, no a, there's an idea it. for a super villain. <laughs> wow. No doubt about it. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Matthew Crawford. It's always good talking with you. Uh, keep up the great work at the Rounding the Earth Substack and stay in touch. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Take care. Okay. You too. Bye. It's Matthew Crawford of Kevin Barrett of TruthShehad.com and KevinBarrett.Substack.com. Back in the next hour with Jafar Ramini, a Nakba survivor, a.k.a. a Palestinian Holocaust survivor. Listen to Revolution Radio at FreedomSlips.com.